0: Today's episode is called Overcoming Self-Sabotage featuring guest Victoria Rivera. Recent
1: years have showcased a much needed growing awareness and acceptance of the importance of mental health in our lives. For the last 15 years, Victoria Rivera has made it her mission to help people suffer less as a holistically oriented psychotherapist.
0: I'm interested in your, your career as a psychotherapist. I haven't actually heard of that career before, and I'm sure that there aren't many people that that have heard of that career either. How would you describe what a psychotherapist is for those who may be unfamiliar?
1: So a psychotherapist is a professional clinician that has been trained in helping people to kind of help themselves. And oftentimes, You'll see when when we have this idea of a psychotherapist, you'll see somebody like lying on the couch and the, the therapist behind them writing notes, maybe even taking a nap, which is like a common joke that you'll see like in the New Yorker or something like that. But really what it is, it, there's so many different ways of working with somebody and my preference really is working with somebody face-to-face. And in psychotherapy, what we do is we try to really help people bring awareness why they're feeling the way that they're feeling. And oftentimes people will come in because they're feeling like anxiety, which is a big one that's been huge. And I'm sure many people will probably struggle with that at some point, especially during COVID. Sometimes depression where people feel really down, not able to get out of bed or just feeling kind of lethargic and, and unwell to somebody who's going through a breakup or having problems with work and getting along with their, their boss, family issues, those kinds of things. So, so people will come in for a whole bunch of different things. And then what we end up kind of coming to a realization about is that it's how we see the world how our foundation uh, in terms of our family, but not just that too, I think of it more evolutionary wise and, and holistic wise. We are, you know, you know, I believe in evolution. So we, you know, we are biological and physiological and psychologically based on our ancestors in terms of how we've come to this world to survive. And all of these things are amazing and great. However, there is a bit of a mismatch in terms of the world that we live in today. So kind of helping people to kind of sort all of that out while understanding their own
0: individual struggles. I've heard you speak about psychotherapy as involving multiple disciplines. You've got biology, anthropology, health economics. I didn't know that it was so multidisciplinary
1: yeah i didn't know either you know because we have this idea of you know when somebody comes in and they're feeling anxious and depressed that there's something like kind of innately wrong with them on some level like that they can't cope with everything that's going on in the world and i think it's honestly the opposite i think that there is a huge mismatch between our environment and where we are and how our bodies react to it so a very good example is you know we're really not meant to work 12 14 hour days and i don't know about you but i know like a lot of the people that i work with and if you know have friends or family that really struggle with turning off and it's hard to turn off because emails you can have them on your phone people are pinging you all the time and there's there's so many things that are happening that we're all constantly kind of in contact with each other and you can work late and still feel like kind of like okay but it's actually not really okay for your brain to do that your brain does need to turn off your body needs to turn off and i think that that's a, a huge mismatch and so some some of the things that i work on with people are is kind of like exploring those things
0: if we have full control over our bodies why is it so difficult to to make these healthy decisions and decisions that are in our own best interest
1: Oh, Jared, we don't have control over our bodies.
0: Ooh, tell me about <laughs> that's
1: it. That's the key. <laughs> tell me that's about the this. Key. <laughs> we actually don't. So we have a little bio 101. We have an autonomic nervous system and we have a brain that's built for survival, right? And so when we are in a situation that feels like it is life or death, and, you know, the common example is, you know, we're walking in the savannas of Africa, a cyber tiger comes, you know, you go to fight, flight or freeze. That's your nervous system being activated that you have no control over, right? The same thing happens to us when in our daily lives in kind of like micro ways. So for example, if you are at your job and you're like, you know, you get an email from your boss, all of a sudden, your body will go into fight, flight, and freeze because you're freaked out about what that email might say. Not all the time, but, you know, especially if you, you know, are worried about something going on with work or whatever or don't have a good relationship with your boss or, of course, anybody in an authority figure, sometimes it can feel just like a bit jarring. And so your body will go into that same reaction, which you don't necessarily have control over. A
0: text message is, is a generally neutral event. Like it doesn't really have good or bad assigned to it. Why is it that when people get bad text messages, the instant thought is, oh, it's something negative?
1: Well, I also think that's kind of an, probably more of an evolutionary process too. It's your brain is always trying to figure out, anticipate problems so it can solve problems. So with a text message, we also have to think of when we were, as we were evolutionary processing things we processed first facial expressions and body language before language even came out and before written language even came out right so there is a the i think the rule is like 53 38 7 i don't know if the math is correct but but something along those lines so 53% of what we interpret is body language and facial expressions 38 is tone right which you can't Get from a text message, and seven percent is spoken word or written word. So it makes a lot of sense that we have a hard time kind of interpreting a text, even though it could be neutral or even positive. Kind of our brains will go more towards that it's negative because again, it's trying to anticipate like having some sort of like problem.
0: Emojis have tried to to deal with the idea of conveying emotion. How well do? emojis work in conveying emotion?
1: Oh, that is a great question. I I don't know. I don't know any of the the statistics on that or the research, but I do know that like personally, for me personally, if I give it, if I'm sending an emoji or I receive an emoji, there is a little bit of a lessened kind of like autonomic nervous system reaction. There is a calm, a calmness, right? Unless it's a really negative emoji, which (laughs) thank God I haven't gotten any. Or scent.
0: (laughs) Or (laughs) scent. There's a a mental model that states that you should interpret information as positive unless you have other information to suggest otherwise. Is it right to to, to infer information and consider that people are going to have good intentions first?
1: Yes. And I think a lot of the work that I do with people is like helping them to understand that. Right, because sometimes it's hard to go against your brain thinking that things are going to be negative. So it is a part of like using your rational brain to say, "Oh, well, they have good intentions." Or even if it was a negative text message, it's like, "Oh, well, maybe they're hungry, or maybe they're tired, or maybe they, you know, something else upset them." Oftentimes, we we assign intentionality to ourselves because we personalize things. You know, we're always thinking about ourselves because we're again just trying to like survive. And so part of that is being able to just, you know, kind of manage that. So if we can use our rational brain to say, oh yeah, you know, I'm going to assign positive intentions to this. That's very helpful.
0: Positive intentions. It takes practice. Yeah.
1: It takes practice.
0: I'm a law student. And one of the things that we get taught is we tend to judge ourselves leniently based on circumstance but then we judge other people more harshly based on character. For example, if someone cuts you off on the on the freeway and you think, oh, that person's a jerk, when really they might just have a medical emergency and really just need to get to the hospital really quickly.
1: Right, right. It's so true.
0: So true. true.
1: Yeah. We understand our backgrounds. We know our history. We know it's like how we're thinking and what we're thinking, whereas we think that other people have negative intentions in some ways. Not everybody, not all the time, but it's a great example of being cut off. You're just thinking, oh, what a jerk. But there are so many other reasons why that person could be doing that.
0: Mm. I want to talk about Netflix for a second. Horror movies and crime, true crime documentaries are quite popular on, on Netflix. They're popular, but they're stressful, yet entertaining. Do you have any thoughts on why that may be?
1: Oh my gosh, yes. I don't know if you watch SNL. Did you see SNL had like the skit where the boyfriends go out and the women start watching these like true co- crime shows, and they did a whole song on it. Did you see it? <laughs> I loved that because it's so true. It's so true. I, well, I think not just women. I think all of us. Well, one thing is is that we like to be scared, but we like to have control over that sense of scariness or fear right so i think that there's some kind of like excite. there's an excitement but it's a controlled excitement it's almost like kind of like halloween too right watching scary movies or you know going out and wearing a mask during halloween like there's a safety in like the sense that like everything is going to be okay from the movie standpoint from going out uh, because it's halloween But then there's also that scariness that we have. I would say probably riding a roller coaster also probably has that same kind of like excitement. And then the other piece of it is that we do like to be fearful at times. And we like to know that things are going to be okay within that sense of fear and that we can have control over it on some level. I think that's also a big part of it. And the other thing that I was, that I just kind of came to my mind too, is that we like to anticipate problems. So, those true crime stories that you see and that you read about, or like those ones that really kind of get people like going. Like, I, for example, I was watching Dr. Death recently, and I wouldn't normally watch that show, but I was visiting friends and they started watching it, and then I didn't get to finish it. And of course, I wanted to finish it because I wanted to see how could somebody like that do those types of things like what was he thinking and i think a part of that is really wanting to have that sense of control or knowing that if somebody has behavior like this person has that i need to watch out for that so i think it's also again to go back to evolution it's like a survival mechanism in some ways
0: even though you may have finished the movie you've been on that roller coaster you're still going to have those emotions still linger long after Yes.
1: Yeah. And you're going to think about it.
0: Yeah. It's like some people say, I don't want to watch a horror movie because I want to be able to sleep tonight.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And that's so true. It's so true. No, I thought about Dr. Death a lot. And I was just like, oh, I just can't believe that somebody would do this. And why did he do this? And then I wanted to watch like the whole documentary about it. And I said, you know what? Let me like not do that.
0: Don't do that. So
1: many other things.
0: (laughs) humans are so fascinating. Like we subject ourselves to things that are stressful, but they're entertaining. Yes. Right. Based on that note, how would you define what stress is? Is all stress deleterious to health?
1: No, no. As a matter of fact, we need stress. We need stress to, to move forward, to grow. So stress is really anything that like has kind of a psych- uh, physiological reaction to your body. And what you want is you want to kind of be alert and calm while you're doing your work. But a lot of us are kind more into like the stressed part where our nervous system is constantly kind of activated and that fight, flight and freeze part. And so stress is very helpful in short spurts but chronic stress is where we have the problem and i think that that's what a lot of us are suffering with now is is more chronic stress so acute stress great like it increases your alertness you're able to like kind of do things in a short period of time and you're able to even you know your immune system works better when it's acute stress but chronic stress is when you're is when you start to really suffer and that's unfortunate
0: so that that chronic stress that's that's deleterious to health. There's that term in physiology, hormesis, where there's a point where the stress becomes good and it helps you to adapt. Is this something that, that you've heard about?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, we do it all the time. We're not even realizing it, like, you know, going to college, getting a project done or having doing a presentation. Like that, those are stressful situations, but they do they they help you build confidence. They help you with your self esteem, and also you know giving to other people. That's when it's really helpful. And again, acute, kind of like, and then getting a positive reward after after it.
0: When you were saying that, I was thinking about parenting and where parents may do too much for their their child, and then they don't have the experience of. Hometic stress. Mm-hmm. Is is that something that that you've seen?
1: Yeah, unfortunately, as a, okay, as a parent, I'm not a parent, but as a parent, your job is to protect your child, and we have all kinds of ways of protecting our children. And one way in particular is that we don't want them to feel bad. We don't want them to feel sad or upset or get hurt. We want them to survive, yes, but we also want them to thrive. And so we think that if they feel these feelings or if they like break an arm or something kind of, you know, physical that happens that's not like life-threatening or dangerous, then we're, you know, not doing a good job as a parent. And that's really not the truth. The truth is, is that you really want to raise children to be able to sustain all kinds of things that happen in life because, you know, they're going to go out there and they're going to have so many experiences that you have no control over. And so I think it's a challenge because that innate desire to protect our child and to protect our families is so strong that we want to protect them from, from everything, even bad feelings.
0: Bad feelings too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Even negative feelings like sadness. Like, you know, it's funny. I just went to this, this same friend that I went to visit. Her daughter is struggling. You know, she's five years old. She's a kind of an alpha female and likes things the way that she likes them. And other kids have a reaction to that. She's a little bit of a bully. And so they don't want to be around her so much. And so, what she's, my friend is upset and sad. She's trying to get her daughter to, To understand that like, you know, she kind of has to be okay with like playing nice. And, but you know, my friend turns around and tells me, she's like, I'm just so upset that, you know, none of the kids want to play with her or they feel, she feels bad about that. And she's, she's telling me that, you know, they don't want to play with her. So it's hard, right? She's under, she understands that her daughter is like an alpha girl and really is kind of like, likes to take charge and other kids aren't amenable to that. And so then they don't want to play with her as much. So she's trying to teach her daughter, okay, you kind of have to give a little bit. But in the background, she's like, oh, my God, these these kids don't want to play with her. And I feel so sad for her. So it's interesting because the way that she's mitigating it is, I think, really great as a parent is like she's really trying to like kind of teach her daughter to share more and to be a little bit more just open to sharing and agreeable, I guess, would be the but she's just she struggles with that.
0: How how does that early stress in childhood affect people when they become adults, whether good or bad?
1: Oh, that's such a complicated question. Well, it depends. It really depends. I mean, we don't know everything for sure, but we do know that before we're even born, our nervous system is impacted by the stress of whatever the mother has going on. So some kids, their nervous system and their system of like kind of connecting with the world is a little bit more sensitive than other infants. So we do know that. And we do know too, that the stress levels of a mother are the same levels of stress that an infant has at six months old. So basically the six, yeah. So the, so infants co-regulate with their mom So being able to actually understand that is really important in terms of helping manage your own level of stress as a parent. So that way your child learns how to kind of manage and co-regulate their levels of stress as an adult. But there's so many other things that happen between infancy to adulthood. Again, so, you know, just to go back to my, that example of my friend and her daughter, You know, that I'm sure is triggering her nervous system to get activated when she's not being, when she's not playing with kids and sharing, you know, there's something about that for her that, you know, she wants to be kind of like in control. And so it's harder for her to be agreeable, but then it's also upsetting because then she's hanging out, then the kids don't want to hang out with her. And so then she's getting reinforced that, you know, maybe she does can't be, people don't want to play with her or that she start, might start feeling bad about her son, who she is. So that's one example.
0: It sounds like this need to, to please people is, is this need to be part of a group for, for survival. Yes. Everything's like all geared towards survival.
1: It, it is all geared to, I mean, we're like any animal in the world. It is all geared towards survival. And if you think about it, I mean, we really, haven't had i mean we were like in bands of like 50 to 100 people we knew everybody that we grew up with we all had like a shared culture shared values shared understanding of the world and then there was a sense of probably more safety i would imagine and you know i don't know this for sure but there was more of a sense of safety and connectedness and now it's a just, it's different because there, we don't all have the same values and we don't all have the same shared way of looking at the world. And that like brings the sense of not feeling safe and not feeling kind of like secure. And then that activates our nervous system too, which I think is a big problem for a lot of us that we're actually kind of struggling with being in this environment with so many people and so many things kind of going on. When in fact we're still like our brains are still and our bodies are still at that hunter gatherer type of physiological and biological aspect.
0: There's about what seven billion people on on Earth. We don't know of any other living species beyond beyond Earth. For example, when in 2020, when everyone had to stay home due to lockdown orders, that that felt really confining just to stay home for three. Six months. Most people will spend their entire life here on Earth, but that doesn't feel confining. Do you have any thoughts on why that is?
1: I never even thought about that. Well, some people don't. I mean, some people want to go to space.
0: Are you one of those <laughs> people?
1: Oh, no. 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 Now, how about you? Would you do it? Uh, I
0: would. Put it on the you bucket would? list? Yeah. Once they figured out all the kinks and, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would, I would imagine it would be really beautiful. I apologize if you hear the sirens, but this is New York. And I live near Times Square. So it's always busy. I would imagine seeing the Earth from space would be an amazing, amazing experience. But I've never felt like I would want to leave Earth. But that's but that's interesting. It, it is, can you, We are confined to Earth.
0: Have you ever felt... Like, you were confined just staying here on Earth?
1: No, I felt confined in the apartment during, during COVID. That was a tough... That was tough. Mm. Like everybody else. Yeah, that was, that was a, a rough one. Yeah. Yeah. Not necessarily... I mean, there's so many different things on Earth. I mean, you could even... There's no way that you could go to every corner and crevice... In your entire life, I mean, it would take, I think, many lives to to do that, right? So it doesn't. That's, I think it's probably why it doesn't feel so confining, because there's so many places that you could go, in different terrains that would, like, yeah.
0: Why doesn't it not feel lonely? Even though the only people we know are this seven, about seven billion people here on Earth.
1: Why doesn't it feel lonely? Uh, well, I mean, you know, loneliness, I don't know about in Australia, but in, but in, in the U.S., it's actually quite a big issue.
0: Mm-hmm. Tell me about it.
1: Yeah. A lot of people are struggling with feeling lonely, even though there are people around. I think a big part of it is it kind of goes back to, like, that trust and, and connection and having a hard time feeling safe around other people. And I think that, you know, you, we, can, we can have, like, all these people around us, but still feel like this sense of, of loneliness, like and in a deep sense of loneliness. Like like we, we don't, no one understands us or we we don't fit in in some way. I don't think people talk about it a lot, but I hear about it in my practice. And I know there's been a lot of research, particularly actually before covid they would call like an epidemic of loneliness in America. Yeah, a big problem is, is that, you know, there's the the shared cultural kind of values, how people see the world, families, disconnected families. I think that, you know, in the Western world, there's a little bit more of like an individualistic way of being and not necessarily kind of focus on community. And we've always, focused on community as humans like that's how we've survived we wouldn't have been able to survive without that and now you know because we're in this place where we're connected digitally but probably a little bit more disconnected personally right and so I think you know just to go back to COVID and, and and for me the time that I struggled the most with I wouldn't say that I was lonely but I I just felt so disconnected from people was during that time because we couldn't go out. And all I was seeing were people virtually and I need to connect with people. I love like talking to people and feeling their energy. And like we talked about before, like the, all that nonverbal communication really got lost for me, not, uh, you know, for a lot of us, but you know we've been able to kind of like adjust and adapt as humans do, right? Stress, <laughs> it was a stressor and we were able to adapt to it. It's a good example. But, you know, I think people struggle. They struggle with feeling disconnected and feeling a little bit lonely. So it's something that I kind of have to continue to keep in mind.
0: And then the COVID pandemic really exacerbated loneliness of people who were already lonely. Yes. I know that one of the, the big problems that people were facing when all these lockdowns was the inability to hug other people because of social distancing. I think they, in the literature, it's referred to as Touch hunger, mm-hmm. longing to, to, to hug another person. Mm-hmm. Do you know much about this? The, the thought about touch hunger?
1: I know a little bit about it. So, one thing that we know, like as humans, there's, they have, I mean, this is like psychology 101 that you learn, like these kind of studies about how in orphanages in certain countries where They had few nurses, but all of these children, and then they didn't get touched and they were deprived and then they were a failure to thrive, but some of, a lot of them also died as well. And so what we, what we learned from that unfortunate experience is that children very early on need to be touched. They need, like they're, our, you know, our skin is a big sensory organ and, and so When we're not touched and we're not coddled and we're not like, you know, uh, rubbed or um, even pat on the back, like there's uh, specific like neurons, sensitive neurons that are on like our back. So when like we're patting each other on the back or when we're patting an infant on the back, there's something that gets released in that, that's soothing. So a hug is just that too. When you hug somebody, you're like kind of like, you end up doing this like almost automatically kind of like rubbing that part of their back, the the upper shoulders. And so we know that there's something soothing about that. I'm sure it probably releases like endorphins and opioids and dopamine and all kinds of like neurotransmitters to help kind of reinforce that connection.
0: Right. So all that came from from the studies in in orphanages where the kids were getting touched
1: yes yeah i don't have uh the specific ones but yeah but there's yeah we learned that like in psychology very early on
0: right. that that is that is fascinating
1: yeah well attachment stuff is also really a big part of humans and you know attaching to like a primary caregiver that was another issue that also a lot of the the infants they weren't able to attach, and even the ones that survived, even as adults, uh, they had a hard time connecting and attaching to other people.
0: What is it about about touch that makes it so important for for survival? Is it the need to feel validated from from others?
1: Maybe now, but I think as an infant, touch and connecting with your primary caregiver or or connecting with another human is important in terms of survival, right? So infants don't have the same, t- uh, you know, they're not born with a fully functioning brain, right? We're the only animals that it takes as long as it takes to be reared by and b- to be protected by our parents or by our primary caregiver. No other animal has the longest time. So so what we know is that that sense of touch is a protective factor so if you're connected to another human being and you have to also kind of think on you know like uh, it's up to 6 months where they're connected to their primary caregiver and there's not a lot of like separation right so there there needs to be some sort of like touch and caring and protectiveness that they feel very early on and i think that that really just kind of sets the stage for us as children as adolescents as adults in terms of connecting touch to feeling a sense of safety and comfort.
0: Safety and comfort. There we go.
1: So maybe it's not validating, but it's, but it's, yeah, a sense of safety and comfort and security and that things are going to kind of be okay. Right. It, like that, that you're safe in the world on some level.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. So technology really has made mental health access more equitable through telehealth and, meditation apps you have a a really interesting youtube video entitled can you think your way out of stress is that possible
1: no (laughs) no because remember remember what we talked about earlier that your it's your body that's having that immediate reaction So it's your autonomic nervous system going into that fight, flight and freeze. That's what stress really is, is that it's in your, it's in like one of the, there's another one too. It's called fawning or people pleasing or submitting, but that's different. Well, we can talk about that in a second, but when it goes into the fight, flight and freeze, it's your body's automatic reaction. So what happens is your body releases cortisol and adrenaline automatically, your amygdala starts to go off and say, this is not a safe environment, something is not right. And then your body reacts to the amygdala going off. The amygdala is like the fire alarm to our, our nervous system in our bodies. It tells us something's up here. And then when those neurotransmitters are released, it you will notice that you clench your muscles because you're going into a fight or flight response. Your, your body is trying to react to whatever the stressor is. And it's an automatic reaction. So a lot of people will have like bowel issues when they feel like anxious or stressed. That's your body saying that we're in a stress response. So we either need to hold it in or we need to release it. And there's, I wouldn't say a million, but there's many, many automatic things that your body does including your heart will start to beat faster, right? your extremities will tense up more or you'll start to sweat. And a lot of people will have these things called panic attacks or anxiety attacks. And the panic attack is really when your body does that, goes into the fight or flight or freeze and you don't have any control over it and there's no real trigger for it. It just happens. You could be watching TV, you could be watching Netflix. Maybe you're not watching a crime drama because you know. then, then you can associate it. Then that would be an anxiety attack But you could be walking down the street and all of a sudden like feel like this feeling of like overwhelming, like dread and your heart starts to palpitate, your your hands start to sweat and you feel like you're going to die. And that's exactly what's happening. It's your fight or flight. It's that autonomic nervous system getting activated in the sympathetic part that's saying something bad is happening when really nothing is happening. It's just that you're, for whatever reason, and we don't even, we don't know, but your brain released,
0: well,
1: your adrenals released chemicals to induce this panic.
0: What's really fascinating, the studies into monks that've gone through MRI scanners and you can put them through like really stressful situations and they don't get as stressed as regular people. This idea of like the power of meditation and mindfulness, is that thinking your way out of stress?
1: So no, that's still feeling. It's still feeling because um, do you meditate at all?
0: Daily, yes.
1: Perfect. Great. So what happens when you meditate for you? What do you notice?
0: Become more present and Mm -hmm. less aware of like what's around me.
1: Okay. So you come more present, more present uh, internally about what's happening. Yes, for you internally,
0: So just right? like sort of breathing.
1: So you're you're breathing, right? So what what what's happening when you're meditating? Hopefully, it's a practice, and the most important thing, honestly, is being consistent and getting your brain to. It's not to stop thinking. But it's to just be in the present moment with your senses of whatever is like going on now. So, usually, I do like a lot of uh, Vipassana meditation, which is like the breathing mindfulness like meditation. And so, what we want to do is we just want our brains to focus on something that is happening in the here and now. What ends up happening when you're having like a panic attack or an anxiety attack, well, usually panic attack, but anxiety attack as well is that the chemicals are being released. The adrenaline, cortisol, your amygdala is like we're in like a life or death situation when you could just literally be sitting down watching TV and you're not in a life or death situation. What meditation helps to do and I think what these monks have been able to tap into is this part of our brain where that can happen like you can you can have the chemicals being released but what you're doing is is you're connecting to your body and you're allowing your body to kind of just calm down utilizing breathing and we know that breathing actually is the key to well actually there's two two or three things but breathing is really the key to get our sympathetic part of the nervous system deactivated and to to calm it down so if you are and being in the present moment with your five senses also helps to calm down your the activation of your nervous system also you know your eyes there are things that you can do with your eyes that also help so so that's what when monks are doing their meditation they're they've been able to kind of tap into this natural Ability for us to kind of calm that fight or flight nervous system activation down. And I mean, you know, there's been monks who've even burned, yeah, who've done like all kinds of things like burned themselves and or be in severe pain in some ways and still they're not activated. And it's because of, you know, their breathing and also the part of their brain that they've been able to kind of like develop. More, which which helps to mitigate the amygdala, which is that the, again that fire alarm for our nervous system.
0: It's fascinating.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So interesting. All this stuff is so it's so interesting.
0: Monks are are not like regular people. They 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 live a life of minimalism. If a person lived a like that, very minimalist in, in the Western world, probably may not be conducive to to survival. For example. There's all this research that suggests that if a person gets a bill and they can't pay it, it taxes their working memory and they just become so focused on trying to pay this one bill and it affects their ability to do other things like prepare meals, get dressed, go to work, and can also decrease IQ by as much as 13 points. wow. Yeah, 13 points. I did not
1: know that.
0: I think 13 points is the standard deviation for for an IQ, so you can shift into another category of IQ. From what you understand about mental health and poverty, how does poverty affect mental health?
1: How does poverty affect mental health? Well, that's a really great example that you just said in terms of the bill. So you see the bill, your brain starts to go into literally like fight or flight. It goes into that chronic stress because it's worried about how are you going to survive? How are you going to take care of yourself? And we have to pay this bill. What are we going to do? How are we going to make that happen? And so, if you're constantly worried about that, it impacts. You're, you're on that. You're in that chronic stress. And when you're in that chronic stress your amygdala is going off a lot you're you're releasing all of these like adrenaline and cortisol constantly your immune system starts to suffer you start to feel overwhelmed and stressed because your brain cognitively so this is a, I didn't know it was 13 points but it, it's definitely true your pre prefer- we have that Prefrontal cortex, which is the part of our brain that does like the problem solving, that's in charge of our attention, our concentration, our memory, all of those things that when we're feeling well and not stressed, that can work fairly well. But when we're feeling stressed and overwhelmed, all of that like energy gets transferred to that like kind of reptilian fight or flight part. And we're just trying to keep ourselves surviving. And that's the most horrible thing about poverty, is that it kind of keeps us in that state. And then when we're in that state, it's really hard to to function and to survive. And you're much more likely to get sick and to have like chronic medical issues. It is like a, basically a chronic trauma that your body is going through. And sometimes, you know, it's interesting, kind of like I was talking about before with how our nervous system as we're infants is, you know, laid out, the foundation is laid out in natally, And then as infants, we kind of start to like kind of work with the world and understand the world. Well, when you're in a constant state of stress or your parents are in a constant state of stress, like we were talking about before, you pick up on that. And if you grow up in poverty, like your ability to kind of I mean, you know, it it can also give you a lot of resilience in many ways. Right. And you can build a higher level of stress tolerance. Um, But that chronic level of stress can really impact you. And probably impacts most people pretty profoundly, which is really difficult. And then, you know, of course, when anybody's under chronic stress, that leads to anxiety, depression, you know, of course, PTSD, if you've had trauma, all kinds of things that, that really impact somebody as an adult.
0: So it seems like poverty affects people at a biological level with increased cortisol, but then also... Impaired judgment and decision making, so they can't make healthy decisions for themselves or for others.
1: I would, I wouldn't say that absolutely, but that could be a part of it. There's also been research too, where kids who have been in like have traumatic situations or uh, trauma, like they have very acute sense of like concentration and attention and memory because they've kind of had to get their prefrontal cortex to work faster or earlier than anticipated. And so what ends up happening is you kind of bypass some of the emotional development. And so the kids will be like anxious and depressed, but they'll be the hardest working kids in class and they're able to sustain attention and concentration and do all these you know cuz they've been kind of for whatever reason it's been heightened in some ways so i think it kind of depends upon the person but overall yes poverty because again poverty is is something that it's biological We're, we are meant to survive and what what do we need to survive we need food we need shelter we need love and caring right so food is a very important piece of that, and if we don't feel like we're going to have any food, or that we're not going to have shelter, or something bad is going to happen, then we're kind of constantly in that stressed state, and that's that's where I think poverty really impacts impacts us, and us as a society, really.
0: I, I want to thank you for 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 that, like showing the other side of what poverty can do. Like you can, it can lift people up not to say that you should enter poverty but it, but some people do enter the other side of it more resilient yes so i have a few remaining questions for our episode that i ask every one of my guests what does living healthier today mean to you
1: Ooh. Okay. So living healthy today, what that means is really focusing on my self-care. I have a morning routine that I do every morning and an evening routine that I do every night. And then I try to, as much as possible, take time for rest and relaxation during the day. And this is because, I mean, just to go back to what I've been talking about, really is that we have this like autonomic nervous system and that two sides we have the sympathetic part of the nervous system which is the fight flight and freeze and then we have the parasympathetic part which is the rest the digestion the breathing the breathing, you know where we're feeling kind of calm and relaxed i live in new york city i don't know if you've ever been here <laughs> oh it was it back in 2019 december ah really okay yep. oh right before everything happened
0: right right before
1: COVID. So uh, very different now than it was then. Things are kind of are coming back, but, uh, but slowly but surely. So in New York, the energy is a lot and it is anxious. And when you walk outside, there are cars, there are people, there are noises. All of these things kind of assault our senses and we don't really realize how much of these things actually put you in fight or flight all the time. So, you know, even hearing like a siren go by, my ears are like, oh, okay, well, and my brain is like, oh, what's going on? Like, even though I know that it's just a siren, there's still a reaction that my body is having that I don't really have any conscious control over. So I just have to kind of say, oh, it's it's fine. Like, it's just a, you know, an ambulance that's outside. So knowing that and knowing that there's all these kind of like micro, like sympathetic fight or flight nervous system activities going on in my life. And I think we all have them with people that, you know, we love and care about. They can, you know, put us in the system, our bosses, our work. Like, I mean, there's just so many things really focusing on that other part. So that meditation, like you said, Jared, is so important. I do yoga. Anything physical, because you can't, again, think your way out of stress. So physically, kind of getting your body moving with your breath is really important and doing that early in the morning. Journaling is really great. Writing out your feelings about what's going on or just, you know, kind of just talking to somebody is very helpful. So doing these, like, kind of micro-parasympathetic rest digesting like breathing calming nourishing things for yourself every day is the most important thing and that's what i consider to be like a healthy like lifestyle and and healthy life now
0: i love it naps
1: naps too taking naps micro naps 25 minutes love them
0: (laughs) previous guests just um talked about the, the importance of naps and she's she's in um she's in florida Ah, she is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you've come a long way from the time that you were 18 to where you are now. What would you tell your 18 year old self?
1: Oh. oh, that's a beautiful question. First of all, thank you. I would just say to, to keep going on the path that you're going on. I, you know, it's so hard because I, I would love to tell my 18 year old self actually to exercise. Luckily, I have kind of hit the genetic lotto in terms of being able to eat whatever I want since I was young. I can't do that anymore now, <laughs> but when I was young, I was able to eat whatever I wanted and I didn't really take into account or consideration physical movement and how important physical movement is for your body and how helpful that is. So that would be the only thing I would say to myself. I think everything else was a work in progress and like a journey of learning. And I continue to learn every day. I read all the time. I listen to podcasts. I like, you know, talk to people and and try to figure out, you know, what's going on, how we can like work on being better as, as humans and as a society. So yeah, I, I think physical stuff, I would say get to the gym girl. Do, do some yoga. Uh, definitely do yoga. Learn how. Learn how to do yoga. Interestingly enough, I went to India when I was in my uh, when I was twenty, and I couldn't stand yoga. I did it, and I was like, "This is not fun." And now I just like kicking myself. I wish I would have like <laughs> l- took it a little more seriously. Was not ready?
0: At least you discovered it. Yes. Yes.
1: I did discover it.
0: Is there any last remaining things you would like to share?
1: Yes, I always want people to know. We are so hard on ourselves. We don't have a lot of compassion for ourselves. We will, just like you said earlier, is that we will assign character flaws to other people before we, and then we'll kind of, you know, say, oh, but I was feeling this way. I think that we still even assign those character flaws to ourselves, and we don't have a lot of compassion for ourselves. I think compassion really starts with understanding that you are a human being and have the same physiological and biological and psychological processes that are going on. And you're in a world that is not conducive to really like enhancing what we are as humans. And I think, I mean, it's enhancing some things, but, but generally like, you know, not our physical being. And so we have like kind of the stress mentality, this, like this hustle mentality that I don't think is very helpful for us, and I think that having compassion for ourselves when we are not feeling well, or can't do something, or are struggling with something, is probably the most important thing. So that would be my 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 parting words and advice.
0: Love it. Do you have any questions for me?
1: Yes. Uh, why did you start the podcast?
0: Oh yes, there was there was a number of um, reasons. One. It was a great way to meet people, really build a sense of community, build that social aspect of my life to, to, to learn more about health and then share it with other people. And three, when I did my Master of Public Health degree, one of the things that I learned was if you want to encourage people to live healthier lives, you do it through the media. So I don't have a media company. What I, what I can do is I can s- establish a podcast and a blog and just distribute information that way
1: that's amazing that's amazing and that's such a great co- contribution to the world cuz you know you're you're going to impact so many people and that i think at the end of the day that's that's what gives like purpose and meaning to our lives cuz like you said before we're only here for a certain period of time and we're contained on this earth so what do we do here victoria takes a unique approach to therapy by working with her patients to identify the conscious and unconscious challenges
0: sabotaging their wants and desires. Awareness is only half the battle, though. After her patients gain understanding of the why behind their problems, Victoria works
1: with them to design personal action steps towards progress and helps them live a more meaningful life.
0: Share this podcast with one person who you think would benefit from it. Leave a rating and review of the Healthy Today podcast on Apple Podcasts. Our team includes assistants Tania and Akia Sadiya, scriptwriter Brian Arioto, and voiceover Yani Harris. This episode was produced by Resonate Recordings. In tomorrow's episode, you'll hear from Jay Feldman about his motivation for his career move from doctor to entrepreneur.